Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. Some inherit wealth, others create their own fortunes. In the first of two talks contrasting the lives of Waldorf Astor and Thomas Lipton, Joe Watson tells us the story of Waldorf Astor. Just to explain the genesis of this talk, last year I did a talk on Nancy Astor, at the end of which Richard Thomas said that Nancy wasn't the most important politician in the family and that it was her husband Waldorf which led to a sort of lively discussion. Now, I decided to go and look into Waldorf. And at the same time, I decided to balance him with the life of Thomas Lipton. Now, one thing that is interesting, whilst there are numerous books written about Nancy, no one has written anything about Waldorf, which might give you some indication about how they regarded him, or indeed how he regarded himself as a sort of power behind the throne, the the quiet man. But I'm going to start with the Waldorf Astor story. Now, the origins of the Astor family, as they became known, lie in the Italian Alps, high above the northern end of Lake Como. They left Italy at the end of the 17th century after a nearby village massacre of fellow Protestants and then settled in Heidelberg in Germany. One of them, John Jacob, born in Waldorf and the son of a butcher, then came to England as a teenager to work for his uncle as a manufacturer of flutes and pianos. Some years later, he decided to seek his fortune in the US, going west shortly after the American War of Independence. Here, JJ swapped flutes for furs after he met a fur dealer on the boat. It was certainly more profitable, and he rapidly became a very successful merchant. This included holding a monopoly in the fur trade with a side venture of smuggling opium into China. War interrupted his expansion in the fur trade, so he went into real estate in and around New York and became the first U.S. multi-millionaire. At the time of his death in 1848, he was one of the richest men in modern history. A word here for his wife, Sarah, whom he rated as having a business brain better than most of the merchants he dealt with. A noticed philanthropist, he gave away considerable sums. They had eight children but he left most of his fortune to his fourth child and second son, William Backhouse Astor Sr., as his first son was sickly and unstable. Now, William followed in his father's footsteps and his fortune was substantially increased when his childless uncle died and on the death of his father, he became the richest man in the world. It's estimated his real estate business included 720 properties, with significant land ownership in the Central Park area of New York. Unusually, during the American Civil War, he successfully brought a case against the income tax imposed by the US government, which was ruled unconstitutional. William too was a philanthropist, and his fortune was left in the main to his eldest son, John Jacob III. Now, John Jacob was known as a financier, but maintained the family's philanthropic ideals, and perhaps surprisingly did his turn as a soldier fighting in the American Civil War. 
His New York house is now on the site of the Empire State Building. During his later years, he began visiting England regularly, and his only child was William Waldorf Astor, the father of the man that we're interested in. William studied in Germany and Italy before returning to the States to practice law in New York. He had hoped to make his career in politics, but failed to be elected to Congress. The attractive consolation prize was being sent to Italy and told to enjoy himself. On the death of his father in 1890, he became the richest man in the world. He then initiated the building of the Waldorf Hotel in New York, and his cousin followed suit with the Astoria next door. However, family friction with his socialite aunt led William moving to England in 1891, and a few years later, he bought Cliveden. He then decided it would be a good idea to disappear from public view. So, in the summer of 1892, Astor faked his own death by having his staff tell American reporters that he had died, apparently from pneumonia. However, the ruse was soon discovered, whereupon Astor was mocked in the press. His wife died in 1894, aged just 36, but whilst he became something of a recluse, in 1895 he built a Gothic mansion on the Victoria Embankment at Two Temple Place, overlooking the Thames and next to the Inns of Court. It's a Tudor-style building that cost $1.5 million and was where he used to manage his business operations. It's not actually that large and is now open to visitors and has some magnificent stained glass. Now, not content with a London house and a country mansion, he decided he needed something even grander. So in 1903, he acquired Hever Castle near Edenbridge in Kent. This was a massive estate of over 3,500 acres with a castle that dated back to 1270 and where Anne Boleyn had lived as a child. Astor invested a great deal of time and money to restore the castle, building what is known as the Tudor Village and creating a lake and lavish gardens, including an Italianate garden to display his collection of statuary and ornaments. Astor expanded his business interests and went into publishing, buying the Pall Mall Gazette and then establishing the Pall Mall Magazine. In 1911, he acquired The Observer, but was later to sell the magazine and give the Gazette and The Observer, along with its building in Newton Street and its contents, to his son and our man, Waldorf Astor. Now, I hope you followed all that. Don't worry, there won't be a test at the end. Now, Waldorf had been born in New York in 1879, so before his family moved to England, but they spent much of his early life travelling around Europe before they settled down properly. Once in the UK, he then embarked on a typical gentleman's education at Eton. Here he was head of the literary and athletic societies and excelled as a fencer, polo player, and was captain of boats, which made him what they call a wet bob, winning twice at Henley. He went up to Oxford, where his sporting interests were more favoured than his academic ones. He was awarded a fourth-class degree in history, but won the inter-university point-to-point races and was part of the winning polo teams. Now, strangely, one newspaper made reference to him being educated at Farnborough prior to Eton, but I can find no corroboration for that. Late in 1905, the 26-year-old Astor was sailing back to Britain from a visit to New York, and on the ship was Nancy Langhorne Shaw, a divorced woman with a young son. Nancy had made previous visits to Britain and created quite a stir, not just with her appearance, but with her trademark wit. It's said Waldorf fell in love with her on the voyage, but he faced stiff competition from her many admirers. Nonetheless, he quietly won her over by repeatedly making sure he was invited to the same parties and events. 
Waldorf, obviously, was a great catch. And Nancy, as a divorcee, would have been a major disadvantage, but she got his father's approval for the marriage. Nancy wanted a church wedding, but that was against Anglican practice, with many of the church hierarchy unhappy at granting a dispensation for a divorcee. So, instead of the big society wedding that many had anticipated, it was a quiet ceremony at All Souls Langham Place. Hardly anyone was present, not even family who all pleaded ill health. The wedding was in May 1906, five months after they'd first met. As a wedding gift, Waldorf's father gave them a family estate at Cliveden, and Nancy was presented with the Sanse Diamond Tiara. Now, Cliveden needed a fair bit of updating, and Nancy set about this project with gusto. There were 120 workmen employed to bring it up to standard whilst they lived in the Ritz, but the plumbing still left much to be desired, and it was many years before central heating was installed. All seemed set fair, but both suffered periodic bursts of ill health throughout their lives. Astor with his heart, a family failing, which required frequent trips for the latest cure and periods of rest. Nancy, too, struggled with a variety of issues linked back to childhood typhoid. Her first child appeared in 1907, and at the same time, Waldorf and Nancy turned their attention to what ways Waldorf could use his talents, wealth, and connections. It was Nancy that suggested politics. The Conservatives were keen to have him, though his social conscience meant he was a little too radical for many of the Tory faithful. He was offered the opportunity to stand in Plymouth in 1908, this despite the fact that he, like Nancy, was teetotal, and the local party chief was head of a distillery. The seat was held by Liberals, but the Astors bought a house there, 3 Elliot Terrace, and became very active in the constituency. The property would eventually be donated to house the Lord Mayors. They used their money in schemes to help the underprivileged in the area. Nancy had memories of her early, rather poor childhood, and had a definite social conscience. Waldorf had the money to back up the ideals and a philanthropic tradition in the family. The election came in January 1910, when the Liberal Chancellor, David Lloyd George, having been defeated in the Lords over a contentious people's budget, went to the country. This bill proposed an unprecedented move to tax the rich to fund a new social welfare programme. It had passed the Commons in 1909, but the Lords were agin it, so a version did eventually become law in 1910, but it was very much watered down. It would lead to the Parliament Act, which curbed the Lord's veto. Disappointingly, at the election, Waldorf came in third in a two-seat constituency, hampered, he felt, by poor party organisation and a dismal running partner. He was further hindered by a bout of consumption, which took him away from the hustings, but they significantly reduced the Liberal majority. The whole process had taken a lot out of Waldorf, and so they decided to build a seaside retreat to help with the vicissitudes of their health. The result was a cottage near Sandwich called Rest Harrow. It wasn't the average-sized cottage, as it had 15 bedrooms, numerous bathrooms, baths with four taps which produced fresh and seawater, and five different types of shower. Meanwhile, the new government was under the cosh with no outright majority, plus issues such as the Tony Pandy riots, the home rule problem, and the suffragist movement as the more radical suffragette wing began to flourish. It was all brought to a head when King Edward VII died and another election had to be held in December 1910. The good work the Astors had put in at previous elections produced dividends and Waldorf was elected with a turnout of 85%. As one paper rather cynically put it, 
$5 and Mr Astor won. It was the last election in which the Liberals won the most seats, but only by two, and they had to ally themselves with the Irish Parliamentary Party to form a government. Although Waldorf had been elected as a unionist, he did act on his own conscience and supported both the David Lloyd George budget and the new National Insurance Act of 1911. This provided unemployment and illness insurance for industrial workers and was based on contributions from the employers, government and the workers themselves. A word here about Lloyd George's aims. He had visited Germany in 1908 and said in his budget speech that Britain should aim to be putting ourselves in this field on a level with Germany. We should not emulate them only in armaments. Well, the new act only applied to wage earners, which was about 70% of the workforce. Their families and the unemployed were not covered. A penny per person from the monies collected went to medical research, which amounted to 50,000 a year, and Astor would later head the committee to decide how it would be allocated. He also became chair of the committee looking into TB. Having been elected, it doesn't really appear that constituency business was too arduous. He was probably more diligent than many of his party, but he would go abroad for long spells for his health. However, during this period, government business was in a state of disarray, and really long sittings meant they bought a house in London. This, of course, led to even more entertaining opportunities. In 1912, his second cousin, John Jacob Astor IV, one of the richest men in the world, in case you hadn't guessed, had been travelling in Europe. With him was his new and much younger second wife, and when she became pregnant, he wanted the child to be born in the States, so they sailed on the infamous maiden voyage of the Titanic. He went down with the ship, but his wife survived and subsequently gave birth to a daughter. When Waldorf took his seat in the Commons, he wasn't particularly active on major issues, but did feature on social policies. One of his earliest objectives was in the campaign for pure milk. Now, this revolved around proper certification of milk supplies and improvements in the conditions of cows and cow sheds. Had you been living in the Victorian times, you would have found lots of fillers and adulterations in milk. The situation had improved drastically by 1914, but it was still open to contamination and tuberculosis in milk, which had been proven to cause serious illness, especially amongst children. It was, he said, fine to promote drinking milk for nutritional reasons, but not if it brought disease with it. At a meeting in Plymouth in May, he gave a talk on the subject to a large audience, speaking out against the state of things, saying there was a greater penalty for contaminating beer with water than for contaminating milk with manure. Again, Waldorf was prepared to side with those members of other parties who were campaigning for the milk bill to encompass stricter regulation. It's said he was so concerned about the milk issue that he took a cow and cowman along with him on family holidays. They were housed in a special carriage attached to his train and he would dispense fresh milk free to children at stations along the way. In 1914, he put his hand in his pocket and bought the South Devon football ground in Plymouth to ensure it couldn't be built on, and it became a public amenity. It's now known as the Astor Playing Fields. The council subsequently put up gates, but misspelling of the word field, which strangely no one has chosen to amend. During the Second World War, this area had several underground air raid shelters built on the site. Following the outbreak of the First World War, Astor joined the army, but his bad heart meant he was rejected five times for active service. So instead, he joined the quartermaster division. As an inspector of administrative services, his job was to check 
and eliminate waste. He took this very seriously, but many resented the involvement of someone they regarded as a young, fit, healthy man who had avoided active service. He was later appointed chairman of the Medical Research Committee, a forerunner of the Ministry of Health. Now, the Astors made several important wartime decisions. Having offered Cliveden to the army when it was rejected, the Canadians stepped in and built a hospital in the grounds. He also made several extremely generous donations to the Red Cross. As the war progressed, many meetings were held at Cliveden between the leading Americans and the British as relations were ramped up prior to the US joining the hostilities. In 1915, his father gave him two newspapers, the Pall Mall Gazette, which he sold, and the Observer. He'd been instrumental in his father's original purchase and was to be very active in its management. However, the couple were to receive an unexpected blow in January 1916, when a newspaper man rang up Waldorf and asked him what he thought of his father being ennobled in the New Year's honours. Well, this came as a great shock to Waldorf. He's had no inkling such a move was in the works, and it led to a severe breakdown in relations between them. Astor Sr., for many years a naturalised Brit, had been extremely generous with his contributions to numerous charitable and political organisations over the previous decades. This included £250,000 to Great Ormond Street. As the owner of a couple of influential papers, this was his reward. Many thought it a controversial decision. Fancy a millionaire buying his way into the House of Lords. Absolutely unbelievable. Now, the peerage meant, of course, that when he died, Waldorf would inherit the title and sit in the Lords. But, of course, no one knew when the blow would come. In January 1917, when his friend David Lloyd George became Prime Minister and formed a new coalition government, Astor became his parliamentary private secretary. In 1918, he served as parliamentary secretary to the Ministry of Food, and then in a similar capacity in the Ministry of Health. He was part of what was known as Lord George's Garden Suburb of Advisors, a policy-making team. The nickname was because the staff were housed in temporary huts on the lawn of Downing Street. Now, Astor didn't feature too much in the satirical pages of newspapers, perhaps because he was an owner of one himself. Whilst interested in health, Astor was keen to push for more to be done on the issue of women's suffrage. A Labour bill was passed in the Commons, which would have given the vote to some of the women excluded in the Suffrage Bill of 1918. It was vetoed by the Lords, and a watered-down version passed in July 1919. Astor wrote to the Conservative leader, Bona Law, two days later, urging the Cabinet to take action. He wrote, I hope the government will accept the verdict of the Commons on the principle of equalising the political rights of women. It didn't produce the required results, and the five million women had to wait until the Equal Franchise Act in 1928. In October 1919, William Waldorf Astor died, and his son was on the way to the Lords. Immediately, Waldorf looked for ways to avoid the promotion, even approaching the King and claiming he could do more good in the Commons than in the Upper House. He'd always spoken against honours and titles and favoured meritocracy. His options were to give up his British nationality or to get a bill passed to allow him to renounce the title. Now, there was a precedent for this, but it was 400 years before and in different circumstances. Meanwhile, Nancy took over his seat, with the local party seeing this move as babysitting the constituency. But Waldorf failed to get the necessary support for his bill, and Nancy settled into her parliamentary career. When Lord George's government fell in 1922, Waldorf stepped back from his own political involvement to support his wife in her duties 
but felt he needed something new of his own, and he concentrated on two other interests, charitable causes and horse racing. He became governor of the Peabody Trust, which was, and is still, prominent in social housing in London, and governor of Guy's Hospital. His other main interest was in international relations, and he was a delegate to the League of Nations Assembly in 1931, and was co-founder and long-term chairman of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which began in 1935. Its mission was, and is, to provide authoritative commentary on world events and offer solutions to global challenges, and is based at Chatham House. It's the origin of the Chatham House rule. Now, not everything went his way. He and his brother were faced with massive death duties when his father died. They went as far as suing the US government for the return of £2 million in taxes paid on their father's estate. That's £2 million in the 1920s. The case finally went against them in 1936. They had paid a total of £17 million in those days in inheritance tax. From the moment Cliveden had been refurbished, it had been used for entertaining both politically and socially. Many saw the Cliveden set as a powerful influence over the Tory government. The famous summer house parties round Royal Ascot took on another hue in the pre-war period, as amongst the guests, which included the King and Queen, was Ribbentrop, the German ambassador at large. Many accused the Astors of being pro-German and appeasers. Now, Nancy had refused an opportunity to meet the German Chancellor, and Waldorf thought Hitler deranged. He'd met him to discuss the treatment of Christian scientists in Germany. Both Astors belonged to the sect. Their conversation had turned to the treatment of the Jews, at which point Hitler had launched into what Astor regarded as a mad tirade. The couple had been portrayed as anti-Semitic. Nancy, in particular, probably was. Waldorf wrote to the Times to defend the Clifton House parties and to insist that he and Lady Astor were no more fascist than communists. To link our weekends with any particular clique is as absurd as is the allegation that those of us who desire to establish better relations with Germany or Italy are pro-Nazi or pro-fascist. Like many in their circle, the Astors were conscious of the heavy burden the Treaty of Versailles had imposed on Germany and feared, as many did, another great war as a consequence. They argued Germany should be allowed some economic recovery. This policy of economic appeasement was one that many held in this period. In 1940, they urged Neville Chamberlain to resign and supported Churchill as a replacement. They also supported war against Germany when it came, although both remained uncomfortable with Joseph Stalin as an ally. With taxes increasing in wartime, they faced a difficult decision with regard to Cliveden. They didn't want to lay off workers, but it was becoming a drain on their finances. They once more rented it to the Canadians for one shilling a year. But in 1942, with tax at 94 pence in the pound, the estate was given to the National Trust with a substantial financial endowment. There was one proviso. The family could stay living there for as long as they wished. Now, Waldorf had remained very involved in Plymouth life and was a major benefactor to the city. He was elected as its Lord Mayor from 1939 to 1944, even though he hadn't been a member of the local council. This, as you can imagine, was a very difficult time for the city because of its military connections. In the spring of 1941, it suffered several heavy raids, including in March, just a few hours after a visit from the King. Waldorf was a workaholic like his wife, and they would get up at 4am to start the day. He instituted what became known as the Plymouth Plan, which rebuilt the city and its surrounds with the slogan, Resurgem, we will rise again. Speaking out, he proclaimed, 
The people of Plymouth have danced on the hoe during the darkest day of war. They will dance here again in peace on a hoe, which overlooks a city which has been planned for them for a wider, freer, healthier and more prosperous life. The plan was bold and audacious, and its rigid cruciform grid was nothing like what had been there before, nor did it take into account the surrounds. Inevitably, post-war austerity eventually caught up with the vision and put paid to the plans. Another of Waldorf's interests was agriculture and the implementation of best farming methods, and he wrote several books on the subject and was regarded as quite an expert. He was also chairman of the Food and Agriculture Organization, the oldest permanent specialized agency of the United Nations, established in October 1945. Its objective was to increase agricultural productivity, eliminate hunger, and improve nutrition. The first meeting of the UN itself in 1946 was held in familiar surroundings for him, the Waldorf Osteria in New York. One reason being the hotel didn't impose a color bar on its guests. Waldorf's other main interest was horse racing, which he developed whilst at university, going on to establish a notable stud. His horses won 11 classics, but not the Derby, finishing second five times. Although the Astors had a close marriage for many years, Nancy fell out with him when he persuaded her not to stand at the post-war election. She felt betrayed by her family and the local party, but it was probably a wise decision and one done in her best interests. She spent less time at home, travelling extensively. Gradually, as his health declined, he withdrew from public life, and in 1950, Astor decided to give up his control of the racing interests. He handed over his stud to eldest son, William, and divided his bloodstock between William and his youngest son, Jakey, John Jacobs. The two brothers tossed a coin and then took alternate choices of the thoroughbred stock. A stroke in 1950 led Waldorf debilitated, but it did lead to a reconciliation with Nancy. Astor died on the 30th of September, 1952 at Cliveden, aged 73, and was buried in the Octagon Temple on the estate. Ladies and gentlemen, Waldorf Astor. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.